so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. It's a sobering reality when we realize that the parents who raised us need us to care for them because of advanced age. As Christians, it's unacceptable to turn our backs on those who are needy and vulnerable. I recently moderated a discussion between Dan Darling, Susie Hawkins, Debbie Bethencourt, and Benjamin Mast about how to best care for the elderly around us. Let's join their conversation now. You're here at the Finishing Well panel, grandparents, widows, and caring for family in their final days. It's a very important topic. Susie was just saying her her husband is, is going to get a lot of leverage out of the fact that she's on the elderly panel. <laughs> so he, he may be on the couch. No, I'm just kidding. But um, no, I'm learning how to take care of him. <laughs> yes, exactly. So these are very important topics. And um, they have a lot to do with what we communicate about the gospel, what we communicate about the Lord, and what we communicate about the dignity of everyone in every stage of life. So I want to start off... Um, Briefly, give me briefly who you are, um, your ministry, and why would you be on this panel? <laughs> so your connection to that. So I'm Dan Darling, Vice President of Communications at the ERLC, uh, and I'm not a grandparent, but I'm on this panel. You wrote a book on human dignity. I did write a book yeah. on human dignity called The Dignity Revolution. I'm Susie Hawkins, and um, I am on, I'm a grandparent, six grandchildren, ages 15 to 7. It's the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also, my husband is president of Guidestone Financial Resources, uh, which is the retirement and insurance and benefits for Southern Baptist Convention. But we have a very large program um, on mission called Mission Dignity in helping supplement the income of retired pastors and widows. I do a, a ministry called Widow's Might, a prayer ministry, which I'll talk about a little bit. So we do both have learned quite a bit about this stage of life and the needs of widows in particular. I'm Debbie Bethencourt, and my husband and I are responsible for Philip Bethencourt, so that's our ministry. You can even, yeah, either Um, thank them or tar and feather them. Just kidding. (laughs) We have 14 grandchildren, and I think I'm here because right now I'm dealing with two parents in um, assisted living and a brother in um, a nursing home. And I'm Benjamin Mast. I am a psychologist and a psychology professor at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. And uh, I'm a geropsychologist, which means I'm a psychologist who specializes in aging, and I'm also an elder at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville. And the book that you wrote about Alzheimer's was titled? Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel During Alzheimer's. Okay, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. I want to start out talking about grandparenting and grandparents. So Debbie and Susie, grandparenting is so important, though it might not be elevated in our society, I guess. So what unique impact can a grandparent have in, grand, in their grandchildren's lives? Why is it important? And why is it important as we talk about the cross-shaped family? You know, when we had our first grandchild, it was actually triplets. So we um, got started off with a bang. And my first thoughts when I was holding little Luke in my hands and trying to get him to eat at two and a half pounds was, how in the world are these parents ever going to be able to teach them everything they know? Nursery rhymes, Bible verses, you know, anything like that. But you know what? They're 15 now, and those parents have done a great job. Not always like I would have done it, but I'll be first to tell you that I've learned over my lifetime that there's more than one way to do something right. And For me, I just feel like my job was to support and to pray and to encourage, to be a good example and to just be available 
for those parents. I would add to that, that's exactly right, Debbie, that I see grandparenting as a safety net, that in God's design of the family, extended family and grandparents are a safety net for parents that may be sick or be incapacitated in some way. And so you're a safety net, not only just for the physical care sometimes of grandchildren, but the spiritual care as well. Because you do uh, have a little more time maybe to pray for them or to concentrate on who they are and their interests and to invest in them personally in some ways that parents don't always have. And the other thing I would say about that is that grandparenting gives you a certain distance, doesn't, don't you think? Where you do see the children parented, the grandchildren parented, and you see the parents, and it gives you a little bit of a healthy distance to help when your daughter or son calls you and says, we're having some struggles here, you know, what about this, what about that, to say, well, this is what I've seen, and this is what happened when you went through that. And oftentimes you will find your adult children have a little more of renewed interest in how you parented them, especially as it relates to how they think they need, they may need to parent their children. So I think in this day and age, grandparenting is more important than ever because parents, and the other thing is, Grandparenting is what I call a double whammy. You know, it's double the joy. You, if things are great when you have the triplets, it's double the joy. You've got the joy of the grandchild and the joy of the child, your child that is happy. When there's sorrow and trouble, then you got double whammy on that too, right? Your grief for the child and your grief for the parent as well. So it is emotional and it's, it's a huge part of life and it is truly a gift. And I think it is really, really an important stage to not let it just fly by, it goes so fast, but to invest in your parent and the children and your grandchildren as much as possible. Absolutely. And even as I'm thinking in the Bible, Timothy, his grandmother is mentioned. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, it's important. And and we're going to talk about later um, multi-generational, but the Bible, as you look through, is multi-generational. It just, it just wasn't up to this one... It, when you're in your 20s, that's when you do your teaching and when you're young and, and that's when you have all the wisdom. No, but the Bible elevates those who are older and wiser and even have that gray hair that they're covering up with <laughs> or whatever. I wasn't looking at you. I will be covering up my gray hair when I get it. Nobody will ever know. So Dr. Mast, I want to transition to talking about widows. The Bible is very clear. You, you can't read the Bible or New Testament without realizing God's heart for the vulnerable and being a defender of the fatherless and, and um, taking care of widows and James. It's true and pure religion before the Lord. Why do you think this is a key theme in the Bible and what can Christians learn from it? Yeah, I love that passage, uh, holding out the orphans and the widows. And it just struck me as I was thinking about that passage uh, flying here that we're in this particular culture where we are striving for power everywhere we turn and uh, we hold up those who have power and those who have influence. And as you said, when we look at widows, one characteristic that we can see is that they are among a category who are particularly vulnerable. Um, not necessarily all widows are necessarily dependent upon us, but they're, they're vulnerable emotionally, uh, spiritually, financially, and uh, it it just uh, is as if uh, God has a special place for the vulnerable uh, in his care, and he's teaching us something about where we can be directing our attention and our ministry, that it isn't always about the powerful and the showy and what's out front. This is sort of a behind-the-scenes ministry where we're reaching out to those who might need special care and special help and even protection. I mean, we think about widows, we think about loneliness, but, but what about financial exploitation? Um, when somebody's alone, uh, they need extra protections. And so those orphans and those widows, the other thing I think about with them is they're both defined by the, either the loss or the absence of a relationship, whether it's parents or a spouse in the case of orphans and widows. And God repeats over and over in the New and Old Testament uh, that he will be with us, that he's present with us, and he doesn't want us to be alone. And so I think Part of the reason why it's so important and what we can learn from it as Christians is that we can be a manifestation of God's presence and God's care for those people in that particular stage of life. Uh, and it forces us to slow down, to look behind the scenes, and, uh, and maybe look for more of what's going on. Absolutely. 
and and in today's culture, and we have to be particularly intentional about that, like you said, because power is elevated, youth, health is elevated, and so and ordinary faithfulness is not so much so, even in, in, among Christians in Christian circles, you know. So we have to be very intentional about that. And Susie, you have been intentional. I want you to tell us more about your, your ministry to widows. And specifically, why, and before you talk about that answer, there's been a lot of movement as far as ministry to orphans. And that's been the cause that's a good cause near to the Lord's heart that many have gathered around, but not so much so when it comes to widows or even widowers. And, and so why do you think that is? Well, orphans have immediate needs. They need a parent today. No, they need a parent now. And parents bring not only the physical care, but emotional and spiritual and all of that. Where widows are at the end of your life, usually there's, you've had your, your family and hopefully grandchildren, if not, but it's some kind of extended family. Um, and I think it just, I don't think it means that people care less about widows as much, perhaps their cause, but they've already had their life where orphans are just, their life is young. So I don't, I understand that. I understand that very much. But I do think that in our situation at Guystone, for example, my husband and his staff recognized that we had, because people live so long now, that we had quite a few retired ministers and their wives or widows that were retiring way below poverty level. Because if you think, those of you that are a little closer to my age, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Churches, most Southern Baptist churches are small rural churches, and they did not pay into retirement accounts like churches do now and provide for that. And a lot of the currency years ago was food and chickens and, you know, produce and all of that. So many of them come to this stage in life and they're retiring and they have no, they just have no way to support very, very little, possibly a small social security check. So Mission Dignity was begun to give these men and women who were called by God and gave their lives in the ministry of small local churches to the Lord and pastoring and shepherding people. So with this, you can read about it on the website, this money we've raised that uh, the endowment allows for people that qualify for this help at these very low, uh, that earn so little, that they can qualify and receive quite a bit of extra uh, money just to help with with incidentals. One woman wrote my husband a note and said, I can eat now at night and it's not just a piece of toast. One of the women wrote me, we have a prayer ministry with the widows too. And I get these, oh, these notes are so great that I get the little shaky handwriting. And one of the women said, now now we can buy gas when my husband's invited to preach at a neighboring town. And so out of that, also, let me just say this quick, then you can move on. But we also did a prayer, came out of widows, out of Mission Dignity came Widows Might Prayer Ministry. And so I do this thing every uh, quarter, we uh, send out requests from ERLC, IMB, all of our agencies, and find out what's going on in the convention and prayer requests, and then send newsletters out to about a thousand of these women. I will never see their faces. We will never have a conference like this because they're in retirement center, centers and they're really old and elderly and sick, but I get the best notes from them about how they, they don't know what's going on in the convention. When you know when you're a widow, that's one of the difficulties. You're not included in information usually. And so just to hear from them and to hear their comments on what is happening in the world, it is, it is priceless. I got this, I have to tell you, I got this one note from this lady and she said, honey, I used to play the church organ and then I retired and, and now there's a church plant near my house and I'm going. And I told the pastor, I'm a very good organ player and I can play the hymns very well, but so far they have not asked me to help in the church. <laughs> and I thought, and they probably won't. But, um, but so eager to serve and eager to be a part of what is happening. It is, I mean, these, these widows, I would say they are weak in the flesh, but they are strong in spirit. And I read these notes and I just say, Lord Jesus, please let me have that kind of conquering spirit, that love for your word and for the ministry that even when I'm alone and by myself, I can see past my own needs and see out there. So it's been a really, really fulfilling ministry to be a part of. 
Well, as you said, it's not that people necessarily care less. I think sometimes it's that it's out of sight, out of mind, that we are around less maybe elderly people, um, because we are less multi-generational as a society and as a civilization. I think to when Mary and Joseph were leaving um, the, the temple and Jesus was stayed behind in his father's house, and, but they didn't know for a couple days because everyone just took care of everyone and they had all ages and, and we're spread apart and we've got retirement centers and communities where a lot of our elderly are and, and we have people having children later and so, like, for me, my parents didn't have me till later, so I didn't have my grandparents for very long, and I don't have any more grandparents left. I'm 35 and just expecting my first, and I told my husband, we're going to have to pray that our kids have kids really early so we can actually be grandparents that can actually move around and enjoy them. So there's a host of factors, but what other factors do you think, maybe we'll start with you, Dan, what other factors do you, do you think lends to this lack of a multi-generational society and even church-wise and even family-wise? And what do we lose in this? I do think one of the things that lends to, to the sort of neglect of widows or even neglect of the elderly in our congregations at times is sometimes in the church there's a subtle message that we only want church for young and active and, you know, because as a pastor, you know, I pastored and you do get excited when young families come and there's a sense of excitement and things are vibrant, but uh, we have to be careful because sometimes we actually market the church that this church is only for the young and only for the good looking and only for the people. In fact, um, there's a sad story uh, I wrote about in my book in in our community where I heard of uh, a a big church near us that I won't mention that there was a a guy that was playing guitar, electric guitar for years and years on their worship team. And all of a sudden they took him off the worship team. And the, the, the reason was that he was not that he couldn't play or that he wasn't good, but was that he had gray hair. And they literally said to him, well, that's not the look we're going for right now. And I just think that's so antithetical to the kingdom of God that you are valued in the kingdom of God, not because of what you can bring to the body. And sometimes as a church, we do that. We we only want people who can bring these great leadership gifts or skills or resources. Uh, And we need to tell, send the message that everybody's valued. I I think of um, uh, a gentleman in our church right now who uh, has uh, real late stage uh, dementia. And he can't even remember his wife's name, but he comes to church every week and he worships. He actually remembers the worship songs, which is amazing. And, you know, he can't, he, he can't give us uh, great leadership or giftings or even resources, but we need to communicate that he is as valuable to our body and is as important to us because he because he's fully human and God sees him as valuable as anybody else. I think too that um, Proverbs speaks to this. I believe it's in 21 and I can't quote the exact verse that with gray hair brings experience. Youth brings energy and you need both. Wisdom and experience along with energy creates a great dynamic and we do ignore that in our peril. Yeah, if I could jump on the back of that uh, thought. So when my family moved from Seattle to Louisville, we started going to Sojourn Church, and at the time I was 29, and we showed up there with our son who was one year old, and we thought it was amazing, this young, vibrant church plant, but we left because we felt old, and uh, we really did, like we were too old to be there. Eventually we came back, and we've been there now for 16 years, and it's always been this, quote, young church, But now that those of us who are middle-aged and have teenagers, um, what we've really missed is an older generation who's gone through what we've gone through. When you have two-year-olds, three-year-olds, you think, well, this is really hard. And then you get a little bit further along and you get teenagers and you think, well, this is maybe even harder, but in different ways. It's as if we've been missing out on the contribution and the experience that you talk about of an older generation who can look at us and say, I've been through this and this is what's coming next and can kind of shepherd us through this. Um, Because I think sometimes when we start to talk about aging, we think about decline and decay and disability, but we don't think about the contributions that they make both to our church and society. And I feel like we can really feel that missing. And so actually we feel now when we have an older couple show up, we're really grateful to see them there, but we still have a lot to overcome in terms of the stigma of a young church that Dan was mentioning. 
Well, this is, Debbie, did you oh, I, was, I really had a different bent on this question that we were talking about because um, after John and I got married, we moved, until we retired, we moved 14 different times. So we never lived where my parents were, where his parents were, my grandparents and all that. And um, so I looked at the multi-generation, not you being together because everybody is dispersing in different directions for their jobs or education or whatever, and then they don't come back together as, as family generations. And then I was just going to throw in that then when we retired, uh, we didn't move where our kids were because if you move where they are, then they'll move. So we picked a place where they thought we thought that they would come, and they did. That's, yeah. Plus, you picked Texas, and you can't get the Texas out of the Texans, <laughs> so they will always migrate back. <laughs> That's so, called outsmarting your kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is so true. And just another extra aspect of this question, if I could ask if you have any ideas. So, Dan, one of your practical applications maybe would be for churches messaging, how you present things, how you communicate things. This, the, our church isn't just for who can benefit us the most, who can give the most, who has the most energy, but for everyone. Um, and that's just fulfillment of James 2, not showing partiality. Uh, but also, what do you have any other, anyone on the panel have any other practical advice for even how we can bring this into our families and expose um, our children to multi-generations? I mean, I think, I mean, if with our, with young, you know, young kids, one of the things we're always trying to teach our kids is to uh, uh, not just respect elders, but actually get to know uh, adults and, and learn from them, and, and that there's there's wisdom there, there's there's grace there. And I think for for those of us who are still in the throes of parenting, it's it's really encouraging and helpful to have uh, older parents who've who've gone through that before to speak a word of of life into us and say, you can do this, uh, uh, you can get through this, uh, you can you can walk through this season. Uh, also, I've, I've talked to a lot of young church planners, and one of the interesting dynamics I've seen, I, I have a, a friend that's planning a church out in Phoenix, and there's a, a, some retired couples that moved out there to be part of this young, vibrant church plant, and it's been a really huge help because they have time, and they have resources, and they have wisdom, and they've sort of come around these uh, young church planners in, in a really interesting way. So there's really fruitful and interesting ministry, I think, that can happen in that season of life. I would just say one more thing that in thinking about this conference this week and my readings and reading through Matthew this week and Matthew 23, it jumped out at me where Jesus said, talking to the Pharisees, blistering them, he said, you devour widows' houses. And so he pulls that out to be a particular offense to him of, of taking advantage of those who are oppressed and exploiting them. And I think just being willing to help an older couple or an older person in your congregation, even if it's not a family member, to walk through the, to, we want them to help us, but we need to help them. I know, I remember when my mother-in-law and now my own mother, who's 88, is walking through this, all these things come to their house for requests for money. And I just had this little sit down with her saying, you don't have to send money to everybody because that's a way that the elderly have been exploited in our culture is taking money from them. And just to remind on some practical points, elder people in the congregation, can I come help you with this? Uh, do you want to, what are you doing? Do you need any help with your money or with anything else? Um, just to be available on a friendship level with them, I think is very helpful. Absolutely. And I have friends who take their kids uh, to retirement homes yeah. and, and do things there, play a game with them, write notes with them, do activities. And we, in my neighborhood, we are new there, but we're just live on a cul-de-sac and there's this uh, widower, Mr. Pete, that lives there. And um, it's just neat to see how all the families, even though not all of them are Christians, uh, just embrace him and kind of take him in and watch over him and care for him. There's just small practical ways that we can do that. But with living in multi-generational community is not without its hardships. So it's not, it's not happy clappy all the time. So Debbie, in your personal experience, you mentioned it, it, it requires a lot of sacrifice because elderly parents get sick where we have siblings that get sick. What have you learned in your caregiving um, and how could you encourage others here? Well, you're, all you women that have had children, you remember when the, your first child was born, you go, oh, I wish this child came with an instruction book. Well, there wasn't one, but 
there are a lot of books written about aging, but there's no particular book written about your process that you're going through with your aging parents. Uh, for our situation, for some of those that weren't, weren't here when they came in, I have a 93-year-old dad who's doing really pretty good. And then I have a, an 87-year-old mom who's bedridden, being taken care of by hospice, and, um, you know, just kind of wasting away. And then on top of that, I have a 60-year-old brother when he was 35. He was thrown from a car in a car wreck and had a traumatic brain injury. He did pretty good taking care of himself until the last couple of years, and just within the last six months, had to put him into a nursing home. So that's what I've been dealing with all within the last year. So, you know, what have I learned from that, and what advice can I give you? I've learned that you need a lot of patience. The roles have reversed. You're now in charge of telling your parents what to do rather than them telling you what to do. You're the bad guy. You're always the bad guy. You're taking the blame, even though you feel like you're doing the best you possibly can because they don't have anybody else to blame but you. Um, there's a lot of confusion that goes on. You're confused because you're trying to learn everything. They're confused because they're in a new place or they're in a new space that they don't know or you know, don't know what to do about. And every single day is a new day. And you got to remember to write things down so that you can document it and remember, you know, what happened yesterday, especially when you're taking care of three. Uh, thank the Lord, hospice isn't in care with my mom, or I, I don't know what I'd do because she needs daily, even in assisted living, she needs daily care. So that's the first thing that I've learned and I have advice about. The second thing is take care of yourself. Um, if you get sick because you've sat by their bedside day and night, eaten improperly, there's no way that you can care for them. I've had friends that spent night and day with their parents, and they just are exhausted, and they just can't make it. When my brother was in the hospital, my dad said that the doctor told them that Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you go home every night and have a good night's sleep because you cannot help Clifton if you are not fresh and ready to go in the morning. So thankfully, they remember that and have enabled me to be able to do that too. Uh, another thing I've learned is I have to be a, pace, a peacemaker. Uh, I have two brothers and I am so blessed on this account because I haven't really had to be a peacemaker, but a lot of my friends have. My brothers are happy for let, to let me make the decisions. They are not financially able to help me make decisions. Thankfully, John and I are able to do it. So they have blessed me with the ability to just say, you do it and we'll support you. So that has been a blessing in my particular case. Then you find that you're the mediator. You're the mediator between doctors. You're the mediator between caregivers. And, you know, you got to keep everybody in check. But most of all, you got to be really nice to them <laughs> because they're in charge of your parents and you want to know as much as you can. And you don't want to make them mad at you or, you know, you, you just be nice. Be nice. <laughs> You'll learn more than you possibly want to know about hospitals, about medications, about Medicare, about Medicaid, about insurance, about finances. But it's a steep learning curve and you're gonna have to do it. And then you really don't know what you don't know. So the best thing to do is to ask lots of questions. And what I've done is ask the same question to lots of different people. And when I find that I get the same answer two or three times, I feel like that's the Lord telling me, this is the answer for your particular situation. And don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, you just can only do so much yourself. And finally, you know, I'm not in charge and I have great faith that the Lord is in charge and he knows what he's doing. And I'm just sitting back and wonder what he has planned because I see my mom laying in a bed, wasting away, and I see my dad. I have a camera in their room, okay. 
I, I see my dad sitting by her bed holding her hand. And they're carrying on a conversation of which she doesn't make sense. And he can't really hear it. But they're having a great time. And my main goal out of all this is just to try to be an example for my children and my grandchildren that when they're taking care of me, that they will know what to do. So that's what I have. So good. <laughs> Such good advice and a perfect segue into the next question, which Susie, I'm going to direct to you, but then open to the whole panel. And the key was setting an example. So it's so easy because it, I, I can imagine, I haven't had to walk through it yet. It's very hard and it, it's easy for people to fall into a martyr complex. And, and um, I have a friend who's parent, one of their parents is facing early onset Alzheimer's, which is known, I believe, Dr. Mass, you can correct me, but it more aggressive and it will progress faster is what she said. And she's, and she doesn't want to have to go move back to take care, which I totally understand, but there's a sense in which it, it's a privilege because uh, taking care of, of our parents, taking care of our siblings is a privilege. And, but it's hard. So um, how can we view that and use that as an opportunity to be an example, to be an example to the lost, but also put the gospel on display? And also, Dan, as you mentioned, to put the human dignity of every person on display, no matter your age or stage, no matter your ability. And this is a chance for Christians, I think, even though it's hard and can only be done by the power of the Spirit to set ourselves apart as those who esteem everyone as being made in God's image. So big question, but Susie, start us off with the being an example to the lost. Well, I do think that you model for your children and grandchildren. I thousand percent agree with you. And I think if um, that would be a very important to take from here. My mom is in Austin. I, as I try to go and visit her and help with her, she's 88, very frail. I never drive down there when I don't think of when I went with her to see her mother, my grandmother. We lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My whole family was in Austin. And this is another complication when you don't live close by. And I see a lot of shaking heads. That complicates this whole issue. But I remember we would go to her apartment. My mother would always wash and curl her hair on those little pink foamy mm -hmm. things. You remember those, don't you, Debbie? You younger girls don't remember those little pink foamy curlers. And take her to get a hamburger. She loved a hamburger. And honestly, I'm telling you the truth. I don't go into her apartment or drive into her, that little driveway of where she lives when I don't think of her, watching her do that for my grandmother. And so there is that modeling thing that they watch and they know. And so I want my grandchildren to see that as well as we love my mother and care for her. And so I know everyone agrees with that. And I would just say about caretaking, there's just no perfect scenario. They're just not, no matter how much you do, you're going to feel guilty that you're not doing enough, right? That's just part of being a caretaker. So you do the best with the resources and the time that God gives you. And sometimes you do have to hire people. Sometimes you have to depend on volunteers. But as I think the main thing is keeping that uttermost in your mind and praying for them and asking God to show you creative ways to minister to them and not just to your own parents, but to older people as well. I have a old, little older lady that's been a prayer warrior in our church, and this is convicting me. I haven't been to see her in about a month or so, but last year at Easter time, I went to see her and took my phone, and I said, would you like to hear Christ the Lord is risen today? And she just got all teary and said, Please. so I put it right by her ear. But I noticed the little people in her room were listening. And then I said, well, let me read you this story out of John when Jesus rose from the dead and it got real quiet in there. So I was just thinking, you just never know. When you do those things, who is listening and the witness or the testimony, and especially, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, um, how one little seed, a verse or a song can bring something to, a mind, to the mind of an a person with dementia or Alzheimer that shows there's still something there. Yeah, I think as you're talking and talking about modeling for our kids, I think the other side of it is that, um, you know, we have Christ as our ultimate caregiving model, right? So everything we've said is essentially 
we're giving up something of ourselves, sacrificing something of ourselves to love and care for someone else. And it's always struck me that when Jesus is about to depart this world, one of the last things that he does is wash his disciples' feet, um, which had to be a, a smelly, unpleasant task and one that they thought he shouldn't be doing because he was too great. Uh, but then he teaches us to do likewise and tells us we're blessed. I think in caregiving we see this Christ-like sacrificial love that we've been called to. Um, but what I often encourage caregivers is you are a caregiver. You can be like Jesus, but you're not a savior and you have your limits. You're going to need that help. And so sometimes we step in with those physical tasks and sometimes we step in in that sort of spiritual care that you're talking about, whether it is a well-memorized prayer or a familiar hymn or a familiar scripture passage. You know, the more you dig into this and start telling stories, the more of those that you get that someone sitting in uh, the nursing home and the chaplain is running a church service and it looks like the person is completely checked out but then amazing grace comes and instead of sleeping, you actually look closely and they're singing every word and the hand goes up and whether it's that or the Lord's Prayer or one of my two grandparents who had Alzheimer's uh, was in a special care unit for his memory problems and special really meant locked. Uh, that was about all that was special about it. But the uh, pastor came to visit him and asked a few awkward questions like, do you remember me? And uh, he got kicked out of the room because grandpa wasn't having it. And so he went and asked my grandmother, you know, how can I reach him? Which I think is a question we all have. And she said, you're the pastor. I'm sure you'll figure it out. And he was, <laughs> yeah. uh, he was a young guy and new at it. And uh, he came back and he, he figured something out. So he opened up his Bible uh, and started to read Psalm 23. And he could have just read it, and that would have been a perfect ministry moment. Uh, but instead of reading it, he started, and he would say, the Lord is my, and then he just paused. And my previously very combative and very confused grandfather said, shepherd. And then he started the next line, and they went back and forth. And so somebody who was unreachable due to Alzheimer's disease, like you were pointing out, when we prompted him in a different way to remember the Lord, he could do it. And uh, those memories are really powerful for people. There's a lot there. And uh, I think we don't want to give up that we can reach them, and that, particularly that God can reach them. Well, I hadn't thought of this until you said that, but the last act of Jesus on the cross was to give the care of his mother yes. to his spiritual, uh, of course, we know he had brothers and sisters, but still into the care of someone who spiritually understood who he was. And so that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, I'm actually uh, amazed. You know, one of the things that really surprised me when I began pastoring was, you know, we're talking about, you know, Christians that are caring for elderly parents. But I was actually surprised that there were, there were at times where I would have an elderly uh, parent in my church, and it was really hard for me to get the children to come and even be present and give care and, and sometimes there were decisions that had to be made that, like, I, I, you know, as a pastor, we couldn't make. And trying to get uh, sort of parents to come around or, you know, the kids to come around and do that. And, and it, it really, it really uh, struck me and, and sort of upset me and made me really think deeply about our responsibility to care for those who are elderly. And you mentioned uh, Jesus on the cross. And, and you see this cycle in the life of Jesus that, you know, he is first— um, a dependent, vulnerable newborn who's being cared for by his mother. And then he sort of pushes away at the age of 12 and is independent. But then at the end of his life, and he's on the cross, he's bleeding and dying for our sins, but he, he makes sure that his mother is cared for. And he assigns this to John. And I, I just think that's such a powerful example for us in the church, that this is not a really an optional thing. This is something that God has called us to do. And I've been fortunate, you know, I watched my mother take care of my grandfather. And one of the things that always struck me, she would go there every day and she would talk to my grandfather who had severe dementia and was really a shell of himself. But she would talk to him uh, as if he, he was fully alert and, and talk to him as a real person. And, and now that I look back at that, what she was doing in that moment is recognizing that even though he doesn't have his cognitive abilities, and even though he's at the end of his life, he is still a full person, a full human being with dignity and worth. And I, I think that's what we're doing when we, when we come and visit 
people in that stage of life. And we're also, you know, I think we're simultaneously lamenting uh, what death does, the decay of death, the work of sin, as Jesus did with Lazarus when he was visibly angry. But then we're also, by recognizing their humanity, pointing ahead to the day when Christ will resurrect us body and soul. Like, this is not the final chapter. He will resurrect our bodies. He will resurrect and, and restore us. And that, that's such a great promise that we have. It's a hopeful promise. Um, Dr. Mass, we touched on Alzheimer's and, and dementia. We see more and more of it, or hear about more and more of it. So I'm, I'm going to expand your question too, so feel free to um, answer whichever part you would like. But um, I've heard some Christians, which in my estimation is just, it's ignorant and unhelpful, say, you know, when somebody gets dementia, Alzheimer's, just what's been in down there in their hearts all along comes out. You'll see the anger and some of that. And I'm like, what in the world? And so First of all, clear up some of the misunderstandings that we might have. Tell us as Christians how we might be set apart and how we minister to those with Alzheimer's how, or dementia, how we're helping others deal with it. And then help us to know and, and encourage us through any fear that we might have. Because I've, I've gone into nursing homes before and, and worked when I was in high school with some Alzheimer's patients, and I was kind of afraid. <laughs> I didn't know what to say or what to do, and, and when the anger comes out. And so encourage us and help us in all those ways. <laughs> Just fix all our problems, please. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few things there. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, this is a, an area that I care quite a bit about and I spend a lot of time in. And um, there's just a real contrast in the way that we can think about and have hope for people who are dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, if you don't know much about it, I mean, it's a, it's a neurological disorder that affects the brain. It's irreversible, it's progressive, and our treatments aren't that good. And so, uh, you know, the way the world thinks about this is a person gets this disease, they can expect decay, um, disability, and death. And frankly, in our culture, when somebody no longer can contribute, when they can no longer remember, when they're uh, now becoming confused, they sort of cease to be a person slowly. And, uh, you know, in terms of hope, there, there isn't much. But I think... It's important for us to remember what God has told us about what it means to be a person and who we are. And so, sure, that's a person who's affected by Alzheimer's disease. Their brain is slowly being ravaged by these microscopic changes. But that's still a person that was created in the image of God. That's an image bearer who deserves our honor and respect. And I think the examples that have been given are examples of how we do that. We continue to talk to a person. We continue to try to engage them. We continue to try to minister to them. Uh, so even though we see these changes, we're image bearers, we're children of God, we mattered enough that Jesus Christ would die for us and promise that he's going to make us new one day. And sometimes I think we think this is just theoretical, right? So what difference does it make that we're image bearers and children of God? I think it makes a huge difference in terms of our hope and the way that we approach someone. So do we expect that we can, uh, we serve and love and we're created by a God who can still reach that person even in the silence of their dementia? You know, a passage that we use often in pro-life circles is Psalm 139, and it starts out by talking about how God searches us and knows us, knows the depths of us. Even before we speak, He knows our needs and what's on our heart. Romans 8 talks about how this, the Spirit searches us and intercedes in prayers on our behalf. Revelation tells us that one day He's going to make all things new. And we think about all these things, and it isn't just theoretical then. This is a person who matters. So when they can no longer contribute to our churches, they're still a part of our body. We can still reach out to them. We can engage them with music, with prayer, with uh, familiar Bible passages. And sometimes we even seek to minister to them not knowing whether we're reaching them. And we trust the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think a big part of it is, as a church, um, what those of us who are in this area would long for is that we would continue to show up and we'd continue to be present and we'd continue to see that person as somebody who has value and who has dignity. 
I think in our culture these days, uh, dignity and value come with productivity and responsible behavior. And I think what we can do for the world is to show that when we approach people in grace, that we bestow on them dignity, recognizing who God created them to be, even when their behavior maybe isn't as appropriate as it used to be. So I think there's a lot there, and I won't keep, uh, keep on with it, but um, yeah. it, the one thing that in talking with families uh, have told me when I asked them about their experiences with the church is, you know, what's the best thing that the church could do for you? And the number one answer over and over is, I just wish that somebody from the church were present on this journey with us and willing to go the long haul. And a story about a simple thing that you can do, uh, a colleague told me about a family who uh, the father in the family uh, got Alzheimer's disease, had a diagnosis, and the church didn't know what to do. I don't think the church is mean-hearted in this. We, just, as you said, don't know how to step in. And so they just kind of kept their distance. And the same man, two years later, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and everybody immediately showed up with casseroles, right? Because there was a way for ministering to that family. And that's still available to us in Alzheimer's disease. We have to be the church. And as it's harder for people to make it to the church service, which is definitely an issue in Alzheimer's and other dementias, we need to be the church that goes to them. You know, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. You're a part of the body of Christ. We need to be unified and have that diversity, not only of our age, but also in terms of our ability and our cognition. And isn't it going to be an amazing thing to see the new heavens and the new earth when that whole body is fully built up, you know, and all those people are, we're all fully healed and fully able and, and I don't know what we'll look like or any of that, but it, it's just an amazing thing to think of that our faith will become sight. Dan, Dr. Mass mentioned the pro-life terminology. We've talked about human dignity, pro-life a lot of times, and he mentioned Psalm 139. When we think about being pro-life, we often think about um, babies, unborn babies and, and born babies, but um, how is caring for the elderly, caring for the sick and, and the um, unable, how is that a part of a whole life, pro-life ethic? And what kind of opportunities does that open up to us? Well, I think it, it definitely demonstrates how we actually you know, feel about human dignity and about uh, the, the fact that every human being is created in the image of God and, and the value of life. Because we do believe it with the unborn. I mean, we, we are the people that are standing next to that uh, vulnerable, unborn baby and saying, this is not a, a clump of tissues. This is not just cells or a fetus. There's a human here. There's a person here that deserves protection and dignity. And we should continue to do that. Uh, but then when we neglect the elderly, we're, we're actually going against what we say we believe because we're saying that you're only valuable to us as long as there's something that you provide for us. And that as you age and as you have less cognitive function and, uh, and as you know, uh, community with you is harder and more difficult that uh, we're viewing you as less of a person. And I, and I think, you know, in our, in our churches, almost all of us would disagree strongly, thankfully, with the movement, the uh, death with dignity movement, so to speak, that says that, um, you know, we should just end the lives of people who are in that state. Um, but sometimes we, by our neglect of people that, that, that stage of life, we're almost agreeing with that philosophy and saying that you're not useful to us. And so I think we just need to combat that with, with our care and by, as Dr. Mass says, going to them and treating them as people, as valuable members of our body and knowing that, you know, first of all, for the, those of us who are young, that one day we'll be in that condition and we'll want someone to care for us uh, as well. And, and understanding that regardless of where you are in terms of your life, that you are still full part of the body of Christ uh, and will one day uh, be resurrected into newness and fullness of life. In our society today, well, in our culture, affluent culture, um, our children, our grandchildren, even us, some of us who are younger, aren't as accustomed to or comfortable with death. 
Um, whereas brothers and sisters in other countries and just people in other countries are facing it every day. Kids at very young ages. Think of the compassion kids that you can sponsor and, and things like that. They are, they are no stranger to that. And Dr. Moore talks about how, um, you know, we used, it used to be where our churches had graveyards just right there in our churches. You pull up and now today that's, we kind of view that as creepy, you know, like, ooh, there'd be a graveyard in my, I might catch it, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, but he always says it's, it's just an important thing because it speaks to the whole gospel story and where we're headed. And I know John Piper speaks toward that a lot. So how can we, why is it important to get our children and grandchildren involved in caring for those maybe who are elderly and, and dying and exposing them to that, the normal, um, in, in a fallen world, rhythm of life? What can that do for them? What kind of hope can that bring them? And how, how can we bring them along into, into that? And that's open to everyone. I, I would just say, one of the things about evangelical churches today, I think we're almost a little flippant about death. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, even funerals for, for those who are beloved saints, you know, I think we skip too quickly ahead to we're going to see them again in heaven and forget that death is the work of the enemy. I mean, Jesus in John 11, like he is visibly angry when he sees his friend dead. He's mad because this is the work of Satan. This is the work of the enemy. Paul calls death the, the final enemy. Um, and so I think we need space for lament, uh, even in our worship services that, you know, not everybody coming in is just, you know, happy clappy that day. They may have lost somebody very dear to them. Is there space for them to to think about that issue. But then also, uh, uh, we're, we're people who believe in the resurrection. So we do believe in that we will rise again one day. But, but I do think, because the culture doesn't really like to think about death, that I think uh, as Christians, we sort of uh, capitulated to that idea. And I, we don't really, we don't really um, talk about it enough. I think we're a little nervous about, about spending time there. In my case, over the last year, with all the kids and grandkids coming and going, you know, I, I always encourage them to go by and see Granny and Peppa. But, you know, who, who wants to go see smelly old people laying in a bed dying? That, that is very hard to do. And some of them will go, and some of them want to remember them the way they are. But in my particular case, Peppa is still alive and well. And, and it it bothers me if I can say that. It hurts me. It, I wish they would always go every time because it's not Granny that they're going to see, really. They'll see her, but it's, it's Papa who needs the stimula- stimulation and can still be a part of their lives. And I'm hopeful when Granny does pass, Papa will probably end up passing before her, but who knows? But, you know, that I can get him out and actually get him to do things right now. He won't leave her side. So I, I liken it to when, you know, your kids were 13 and you woke them up for church on Sunday morning and they said, I don't want to go. You're going. Well, this is the same thing. You don't want to go. I don't want to go. But I go. I don't want to go. Make them go. You don't have to stay a long time, but just let them see you. So, you know, it, it is scary. Yeah. But we got to push them there. Absolutely. And kids, it's scary too because kids can say really awkward things. You never know what's going to come out of their mouths. I think of our, I have some friends who um, his dad has has uh, cancer. And so they, they tell their children about that. Their five-year-old, or he's maybe he's six now, but, um, and they said, you know, grandpa can die and is dying and, and he hasn't. He, he kind of goes back and forth. But right in front of grandpa, the little boy is like, when's grandpa going to die? And it's like, oh, brother, you know, but just, I go in there some days and mother looks at me and says, you're still alive. And it's like, yeah, mom, I didn't die yet. Neither have you. So there are funny moments in this whole process. I was, another funny story that, you know, hopefully is kind of funny just to, because it can be so heavy, but my, um, a co-worker, his wife, the, his dad was dying of, his mom was dying of dementia. And um, she thought that his wife, who they've been married for you know, 40 years maybe, 
was that he had left her and that she was the other woman. So she, the whole time while she had dementia and they would go visit, she did not like Linda because Linda was the other woman who actually she wasn't. She's been the wife all along. So it can be awkward. It's just kind of embracing the awkward and loving them through that. One thing I think is helpful is to tell family stories. And so to tell your grandchildren what your mother, your 88-year-old mother was like. I mean, my mother has tried to bling me up her whole life. She has tried to buy me glitzy purses and clothes, and I'm just way too plain Jane for her taste. And um, that's kind of gotten to be a family joke. But to tell them stories, and I always tell my daughters that she doesn't need a present. She doesn't want your present. Have the kids write a poem. Have the children do an acrostic. I mean, that's so simple, but she loves those things. And so somehow to keep the memory of who they are and who they were and who they, how they made you the person you are, to keep that alive in their mind as a family story is not that hard to do. You have to think through to tell the right stories. But I think that's helpful as well. I, I would just say that's another concrete way that we can honor people. You know, so maybe they can't tell us their story anymore, but, but reminding people who they were, what they've done, you know, how they've been a part of this family of faith. And sometimes I, I think if we were to step back into dementia, we might be surprised that that person actually somehow joins in and benefits from that retelling of their story. Uh, I think it's a great suggestion. So you're saying tell them the story. I'm saying both. You, both. You know, I telling the kids the story so that they can see the longer picture of who they are because I think sometimes they miss out on that, right? So they, they need to see this is more than an Alzheimer's patient. You know, this is somebody with a long, rich, deep life and maybe it was difficult, maybe it wasn't, maybe they were a, a good person and, and, and maybe they weren't, but telling those stories to other people as a way of honoring them, but also telling it back to the person, even for a person who maybe shows no visible response, uh, can be a really loving way of remembering with them. Well, and as we are about to close, I just want to remember too, those in the room who are dealing with situations that are difficult, like their mom and dad maybe wasn't a good mom and dad, but they're stepping in as a believer to try and speak a different word, you know, and love on them. Or those with, uh, I mean, my husband and I, between us, we've got four different family units to, to navigate, and not all of them are fun to be around. So I think about when they get older, oh my word, like my Christian obligation weighs on me, but my flesh says, I just want to live thousands of miles away. So it can be really difficult. And I think as y'all have said, it's the importance, especially as believers of community. You can't do it alone. You've got to have the body of Christ rally around you and help you. We're not meant to do any of this alone. We're meant to bear up one another's burdens. So um, Dan, as we close, will you pray for us? But will you just once more give encouragement as to why these issues are so important in helping us be the body of Christ and, and put on display how great our God is. Yeah, I think, I think the, the one of the things that it just teaches us, uh, I think, is that uh, the, the fragility of life. Uh, I think some of the reasons we don't often want to be around people in that stage of life because it reminds us of our own frailty and our own weakness. And we don't want to, you know, we have a culture that doesn't really want to think about that. Uh, but it's really the life cycle that we come in as vulnerable and we're cared for and we're dependent and then we, we grow up into adulthood and, and then we're the ones caring for, for those who are dependent and then we become dependent again. It's, it's, uh, and, and we learn sort of this weakness uh, in depending uh, on Christ. And I also think it's a picture of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is made up, uh, Jesus says, of the, of the weak and the less than noble. Uh, this is what makes, should make our churches otherworldly, that you're valued here be, because you're valued by God. And so I think that, that's really really important. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just thankful for all the folks in here and for this uh, important topic. Lord, I pray that you would um, empower us to care for those uh, in our midst, family or, or friends or other folks, Lord, who are in the stages of life where they need care. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the, the heart and mind of Christ, that we would come alongside the vulnerable and advocate for them, but also care for them and love them and treat them uh, as whole human beings with dignity and worth. And Lord, I just pray um, right now for all those in this room and, and maybe others who are in that process of caregiving. Uh, it, it, it's 
often so difficult and hard and complex and uh, exhausting at times and sometimes lonely, uh, many perhaps caring for uh, parents and feeling like they're all by themselves and they don't have any help from siblings or friends, uh, that you would come alongside them and give all these caregivers strength, Lord, and, 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 and hope. And Lord, I pray for um, our churches, that we would be the kind of churches where uh, we value and we care for and we obey your command to uh, care for widows uh, in their distress. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a great example to the watching world of the kind of uh, kingdom that you have uh, inaugurated in Christ, Lord, that people would be attracted to this kind of kingdom by the way that we embody in our churches, Lord. And bless our time together and uh, that we would continue to have a fruitful uh, time at the rest of this uh, conference. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Visit our site, erlc.com, for more related resources. And join us next week for a stirring message about marriage from Matt Chandler.